Hi, I'm Dr. Kevin Cheng, founder of Asana, a health service dedicated to transforming lives through prevention. Over the years, I have reflected with colleagues on what we wish people did so they can avoid pain, surgery, or developing a chronic disease. Often the answer lies in embracing a proactive mindset and putting healthy lifestyle practices into action. By doing this, the upside is not only better health, but also saving us time, money, and stress in the long run. In this podcast, I'm joined with my friend Saxon Piggott to chat with a new health expert each week. We'll cover practical ways to look after ourselves, how to prevent illness, and ways we can be inspired to live well. Welcome to Prevention Hacks, the weekly conversation where we go to health experts for advice, so you don't have to. Uh, welcome, Dr. Chris Kirk, uh, to Prevention Hacks, which is our community podcast. Uh, uh, podcast. And uh, it's wonderful to have you on um, uh, this podcast talking uh, to us about preventative cardiology. So thanks so much, Chris, for, for your time. Thank you for having me. It'll be a pleasure. Um, so I might kick off and um, wanted to ask you about how much of heart disease or cardiology is preventable? Uh, because there's a big focus on lifestyle conditions these days. Um, and we have this mantra of getting in early, prevention is always better than cure. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the evidence and the opportunities for preventing heart that, That's a very good question. And, and I would have to say up front that I'm not sure that we know the answer to that. Um, to some degree, and bear in mind when we're talking about cardiac disease in this instance, we're talking really about atherosclerosis. Obviously, other issues, genetic conditions, valve disease, they're probably not influenced by anything other than, than genes or the environment. So we're talking about atherosclerosis and atherothrombosis, the, the typical, uh, which is the commonest bread and butter thing we have. How much we can predict? We generally believe that we can predict probably 90% of people's uh, heart disease. In other words, are they, going to like, are they going to develop it? I tend to say to patients, look, if I had a crystal ball, could I predict whether you're going to develop cardiac disease? Well, we don't have, we don't have a crystal ball, but our crystal ball that we have is family history, cholesterol, smoking, blood pressure, diabetes, diet, sedentary lifestyle, and those sort of things. With and this is, this is really an answer to your question with the greatest, in my view, the greatest impact being family history. I believe all disease is a complex interaction of genetic susceptibility and an environmental factor. So for example, you could have a very strong family history or your ancestors, fathers, brothers, et cetera, had a heart attack or coronary disease in their forties. You know what? These are the most difficult patients I have. They have a strong family history. They have normal cholesterol. They're not smoked, they exercise. And you know, you say, look, the chances are you're gonna get cardiac disease. By undertaking a healthy lifestyle, there's a good chance that you will postpone that, but the likelihood, because the genetic, the genetic influence is so strong. Conversely, you've got people like George Burns, who can smoke 60 cigarettes a day and do whatever you want, and they'll live till they're 100 because they're genetically stoical. I often use the analogy of skin cancer you know, if you take uh, dark-skinned people, they have a low incidence of skin cancer. And it doesn't matter how much sun they get. But if you look at albinos and blondes, you know what? I'm sorry, buddy. You're likely to get skin cancer. So that's a similar analogy. Having said all of that, um, you can have a major... Obviously, you can't alter genetics. So uh, we have a major inflac input with uh, risk factor management. And that's the conventional cholesterol, blood pressure, smoking exercise. Um, 
some people would argue diabetes is non-modifiable or type 2 diabetes is non-modifiable um, cholesterol is non-modifiable blood pressure is non-modifiable obesity is I would strongly disagree with that. I think I think nearly all those factors are tremendously modifiable with lifestyle, with preventative measures, which is what we need to try and do. Unfortunately, despite the evidence being very strong, um, not just from the point of view of metabolic parameters, but from the point of view of um, actual reduction in heart disease in people who are more active and greater incidence of heart disease in people who are less active, probably less than a third of people in, in Australia undertake any activity whatsoever. It's estimated in America that 250,000 deaths per year are completely preventable by lifestyle measures, by exercise. So it is a very frustrating thing for me. I mean, I think I've been sort of preaching this for 26, 30 years now, and uh, it, it, is, it is almost like smashing your head against the wall from the point of view of prevention. But if I was to give you an exact answer, I would suggest that probably, and this is the pessimistic side of me, probably no coronary disease is preventable, but it's certainly eminently delayable. In other words, are you going to have a coronary event when you're 50 or when you're 85? And that's that's a that's a major impact. So really lifestyle is the number one thing to do. That's Yeah, so that's definitely worth pursuing, right? The fact that we can delay the onset Absolutely. of the symptoms. And by the time you get those complications, we've seen... Um, patients and their quality of life. Um, once you get heart disease, people's quality of life really changes. You get tired, you have restrictions on, on what it you can does. do. And, and so um, looking at those modifiable risk factors, as you say, for atherosclerosis, which is really, you know, for those um, who don't know, it's the plaques in, in our arteries. Um, that's, a, that's a huge opportunity. And I noticed that um, it, as, a, as a cardiologist uh, in, your, in your practice, uh, you have a big focus on on exercise. Um, so, what what would you want um, people to do before they come to see you, which is often late in the piece? What what are two or three things uh, that you want everyone to to think about? Look, it, it it is often late in the piece, but a, a large proportion of my work at the moment is primary prevention, is screening, uh, either patients who have got family history who are worried, they're worried well, um, or patients who've just got hypertension or cholesterol with no um, underlying heart disease. So, as a preventative strategy, and obviously they're the people we'd really like to get on on top of early. Um, but it's not too late. So those are patients you're trying to prevent atherosclerosis, which, as you mentioned, is plaque. But, but man lives with atherosclerosis. We can, we can, these patients can live forever with atherosclerosis. It's not a big deal. It's atherothrombosis. It's when you develop plaque rupture. And exercise is also equally as important in patients who have established, probably more, in patients who have established heart disease for a whole bunch of metabolic and physiological reasons. What I would like to do them before they come and see me? Well, uh, it's a difficult question to answer because I think there is the, the worried well. And, uh, you know, exercise can be dangerous. Um, we need to guide people about what type of exercise and what intensity of exercise to do. And uh, sometimes that's only going to occur once you've established that they don't have any uh, occult coronary disease. Um, what I'd like to see everybody do is to sort of reprioritize their lifestyle um, we, uh, the excuses I get, I'm too busy. I've got to drop the kids, that sort of thing and everything. Reprioritize lifestyle with at least an hour of activity a day. Um, and that's sort of seems difficult for a lot of people, but it's actually pretty straightforward. That, that is the priority of everybody's day. And I would suggest that probably, well, certainly less than a third of patients do that adequately. 
Um, and of course, then we can you can digress and talk about diet, et cetera, et cetera. But from the point of view of exercise, an hour of activity a day is is just worth its weight in gold. What kind of activity are we talking about? Is it going for a walk or is it do you need to break a sweat? How, how much activity do you need to do? That's a, that's also a good question. You know, when I was a, a junior doctor, the, the sort of recommendations for people was that you do 20 minutes of walking three times a week. Um, I suppose it's the old saying, how long is a piece of string? Uh, it needs to be tailored. You know, if we've got a 90-year-old or an 85-year-old who's just had a heart attack, I'm not going to tell them to go to the gym and break into a sweat and go for a run. So it, 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 then you tailor that and probably uh, a, a walk would be adequate. Um, I do believe every day. I do believe something should be done every day. Um, from the point of view of what level, uh, you know, the modern era is we have we have uh, Garmin watches, we have smartphones that tell us every step that we've done and every heart rate thing. I'm not too fussed about that. I actually don't like them. I think the guide for everybody is breathlessness. So if you get somebody who only who walks and they say, well, just stride up the hill, get yourself a little bit breathless. That's what's putting a bit of more effort on, on the cardiovascular system. That's what's doing you good. Sweat you can't use because in the middle of summer you're gonna sweat, in the middle of winter you're not. So I think, I think breathlessness is the go. From the point of view of somebody who's clearly not got coronary disease, they might've come to see you when they're 40, 45, family history, and you wanna do some, uh, um, some more preventative strategy, then I would suggest a more vigorous exercise. Um, uh, you know, really sweating, depending on the circumstances, breathless, getting yourself fatigued. And I, I wouldn't put any limit on them. But at that age group, I think just going for a walk doesn't really cop it. Are there any warning walk. signs? Are there any anything that people can look out for? Is it when it, this event occurs, you know, when you have an issue, then it, it's sort of, it, it, it's like a waterfall event or uh, are there things people... From the point of view of, are they unmasking any cardiac disease? Yeah, you know, yeah. if someone's... If someone's prone to have a heart attack, but maybe they've never had the checkup, maybe they avoid going to the doctors. Like, yep. if if they're suddenly at risk, is there are there any warning signs that they should be looking out for? Look, maybe... look classically, of course, is chest pain, but basically any exercise limitation. So, um, you know, it, it we see a lot of patients with uh, vague symptoms of this, that, and the other, and they're sent to the cardiologist primarily because the GP or the referring doctor is concerned. And I mean, it's much easier for us because we're specialists and we're sort of seeing them as a second opinion. But often you can look at them and say, Blind Freddy can tell you this is not cardiac. Now, the trouble is if you're having rest symptoms, as in having a heart attack, all bets are off. But from the point of view of ongoing daily reproducible symptoms, essentially exercise limitation, usually because of chest pain or excessive breathlessness. Um, some people have excessive fatigue. Anything that you think, okay, this is not right on exercise um, is a warning sign, but the classical one is chest pain. And then you've got what type of chest pain. Um, it, you know what? It doesn't actually matter. Obviously, we talk about classical central pressure, left-sided arm, jaw, et cetera, et cetera. In my view, it doesn't matter. If it's reproducible on exercise, that is the warning of cardiac pain. I've had patients over the years that have come to physio and they've had chiropractors on their back because, and I said, when is it? It only comes on when I go for a walk, Doc. Now, it could be arm swinging, okay, but that is angina till proven otherwise. So I think that's a really important important message for people. Um, 
Just to digress a little bit, three, two years ago, I sort of evolved with one of the over 35 soccer teams here in, uh, in Lane Cove, and they had two heart attacks that year, both resuscitated because we have defibrillators in the edge of the field, ended up in North Shore. And then I was in a meeting at the, at the hospital and we talked about the fact that um, patients need to be educated because in retrospect, both these patients, both these people had symptoms leading up to this. They described it as indigestion. They weren't quite right. They had a non-specific feeling in the chest. Both of them had those symptoms beforehand. And the, the argument or the comment was, we need to start educating patients about what warnings, as you've asked, what warning signs to have. And I, I knew these two, two situations and I also brought it up, sadly, that actually it's not just the patients we need to educate, we need to educate the doctors because both of these guys had seen GPs beforehand and had been dismissed as angina, as, as uh, indigestion and, and subsequently went on. So very often, even though a heart attack and subsequent death still, still probably occurs or still is probably the first manifestation of coronary disease in about 25% of patients, Despite all our technology stenting, but still the commonest presentation is a heart attack and sudden death. But in fact, if you look at a lot of those cases, they have had some prodromal symptoms beforehand. So I think education to all of us and being attentive to those sort of symptoms. So uh, that's why that question is such a valid one is really important. Screening and, and checking your heart health um, seems to be an important part that we can embed in in general primary care and in community, Chris? Absolutely. Now, the problem with that is, is actually what do we do with that information? And you may or may not know, uh, well, I know you do know that, uh, you know, CT scanning has become a, a widespread sort of, a, I shouldn't use the word pandemic, but a thing that everybody wants to do now. And I heard just last week that since Dean Jones' death, it's now been suggested that everybody has a CT scan. I don't. I, I just think this is a really dangerous uh, way forward because what do we do with that information? Um, you could argue it might influence you with regards to how aggressive you are, the risk factors, et cetera, et cetera, but we should be aggressive with those risk factors anyway. So I think that's going to take a whole bunch of well people and turn them into cardiac neurotics. Um, so screening is important, but the predominant, the predominant decision-making about cardiac disease is dependent on symptoms and demonstrable ischemia. It's not dependent on plaque per se. So that's why focusing on people's symptoms, plus or minus a non-invasive test, I think still is the, is the easiest and the basic way to go. But symptoms, warning, and I often say to patients, not only is exercise really good for you, it also acts as an early warning. So if, you're, if you've gone for your walk every day and you've gone up a certain hill and after a year or two you think, you know, I'm now I'm just not feeling quite right at the top of the hill, you're going to know about that before the couch potato. So it has, a, it has a double benefit. Do you have any advice about um, our tendency towards sedentary behaviours these days, sitting down, office, office desk work? I read that in the um, 45 and up uh, study in New South Wales, you know, you're accumulating cardiovascular risk, you know, every hour that you're sitting in a desk job. And Absolutely. you might be able to mitigate that, you know, by going to the gym and doing your hour of exercise every day. So it's the positive activities is important, but also it's mitigating the other risk that uh, occurs from just sitting. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, these things are really difficult to quantify and put into clinical studies. But 
You know, um, in the old days, farmers went out on the farm. People didn't have remote controls. They, they, they had to get out of their car to close the garage door. We had to get up to change the television. All those things have gone. So the, the if you like, the passive lack of exercise during the day is, is very important. Um, there are moves. Some places have these uh, stand-up desks. Even having stand, what they call high-load desks, even having stand-up desks, your core muscles are engaged. You're, you're, more, you're more active. Um, some very uh, sort of obsessive people, although I wouldn't, obsessive is probably the wrong word, word can have these with, with exercise things underneath the desk. If you're having to stay at the desk all the time, then there are things that you can do. But you know what? Um, if nothing else, COVID has taught us that actually we don't have to sit at the desk all the time. Productivity is much better. And that's a, a lot of large businesses around the world um, having put gyms in their, in their offices. And you might say, why would we put a gym in the office? We want our workers to work. But if you get some workout, you're both mentally and physically more alert and productivity goes up. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Mm, yeah. And then simple things, and you guys know as well as I do, you can go into the city, you can go into a building, you can go into a hotel, there's the lifts right in front of you. And I go, where are the stairs? These are the sort of things we need to change around. The stairs should be there and you should have to look for the lifts. Um, lifts are important. We obviously need lifts, but we need to change our whole um, way of life towards being more physically active. Mm, yeah, I, I can't help but think that a lot of the advancements in, in society around driving productivity, such as um, someone told me the invention of air conditioning actually mm. helped a lot of countries, particularly in the tropics, you know, just become more productive because they could yep. stay in the office and just sit there and work. Yep. I can't help but think that a lot of those productivity gains have a downside to that in terms of, um, you know, how active we are. Kevin, I, I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, I, I, my kids always say, Dad, you're just a miserable pessimist. But I truly believe the technology that we have available uh, is going to be the downfall of society um, from, from all aspects, from the social media, the computers, that sort of thing, from the driverless buses, from the driverless planes, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're, we're losing, the human being is losing its need to use both its brain and its body. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a real downside to me. It's also losing its role. Everything's correct. being automated. The, correct. So, so then we've got then we can move into the the other. You know, that's a good lead into the other benefit of exercise, which is mental health and um, self satisfaction with having a role to do. And you know, that doesn't have to necessarily be an. A, a, you know, you don't have to be the prime minister or a doctor or anything like that. Just having some role in society is really important for mental health. And uh, you know, I truly believe that physical. Um, you know, the best antidepressant in the world is is physical exercise. I often, uh, I do a fair bit of uh, kayaking and I'll often see people down the river and how are you? And said, so, oh, good, just getting my, anti my daily antidepressant. Um, but still trying to persuade people to, to follow that is extraordinarily difficult. What about coffee? Is, is coffee bad? <laughs> Can I refrain from answering that? Look, you know, as well as I do over the years, if we go back, uh, eggs are good, eggs are bad, chocolate's good, chocolate's bad. Coffee's bad, chocolate might not be, uh, coffee bad, maybe it's not so bad. I don't believe coffee's bad. I think it, its main um, potential role is in blood pressure. If it's more of a stimulant, um, it, it, can, it can put your blood pressure up. But from the point of view of cardiac disease, I don't think it's particularly bad. Um, if we're going on to diet, um, obviously there are some well-established lifestyle measures from the point of view of diet, such as the Mediterranean style diet. 
But uh, even more important than that is obesity. And this is another area that exercise has an enormous role to play with regards to obesity. Um, uh, having said that, and I'll often say to patients, who say, I can't lose weight, I'm not going to do any exercise. I say, well, look, don't be despondent. In my view, you're far, far better off being overweight and going to the gym every day than a skinny little runt who sits on his backside all day. So exercise, I think, is that weight is important, but exercise, I believe, to be more important. Saxon's managed to ask a coffee question for most of our podcasts. It's a very um, a loaded question. <laughs> I would be interested to see what the, the because look, you know, a lot of I'm these doing things, research. Hey, I'm doing my own research, just validating well, my own life choices. See, see, the other thing, and, and I'm very mindful of this, and this is again a pertinent a pertinent point, is that um, at the end of the day, we're here to we're here for a good time. Okay, so we, we, if there's things and pleasures in your life you want, you need to make that decision about whether that's worth, worth doing. But exercise negates a lot of life's pleasures. So if you get a good bout of exercise in day, to some degree, to some degree, what you do the rest of the day with your diet is less important because you're, you're being active and you're, if you like, you're paying back. You're paying back that is discretion. How do we... Um... Because you've been plugging away, Chris, for, as you say, 30 plus years, we understand the benefits of exercise. It's so compelling. But as you say, Americans, Australians, you know, our activity levels are, are low compared to recommendations where we're all gaining weight, you know, two thirds of Australians yeah. overweight or obese. How do we make this change um, either through the health system or in society? Yeah, look, it, it is tough. And, you know, I, 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 I have some ideas um, getting going on from that. We're aware that um, over a third of children sort of under the age of 17 are obese. So it's something that's got to start right at the, at the sort of embryonic level, if you like. And that obviously starts with parenting and schools. And obviously there are moves around the world for diets to improve at a younger age. Focusing on exercise, look, this is a really, really difficult problem because, you know, there's no point in me talking to people who like exercise. They like it. If you like something, you do it. If you don't like exercise, it therefore by definition is a chore. If it's a chore, you will not maintain that chore. You might be conscientious. You might have all the willpower in the world and you might do it for six months, um, but you won't continue. Let's face it. The whole premise that personal trainers exist is because people don't have the willpower to do their own exercise. So that's something that we need to instill. And part of my sort of uh, thinking over the past 20 years is I can't get people to exercise. Um, what I need to do is teach them how to exercise and how to enjoy exercise. And I'll often say to patients, I say, look, you give me your body for six to 12 months, I will transform your life. And obviously that involves dieting, weight, exercise but it also involves teaching them how to enjoy exercise. I can't tell you how many people I see and they say, oh, I live there. I said, well, just go for a walk, find some hills, whatever, join a gym. I'm not joining a gym, can't stand gyms. I said, well, go for a walk. Why well, can't? I said, you're retired. Said, yes. So why don't you get in your car and drive to Balmoral and walk around there and then enjoy a cup of coffee? So people don't think about it. So some of it's education, but we need to teach people how to enjoy exercise. We have harbors where people can go kayaking. We have lakes and somehow instilling that not just go to the gym and do an hour exercise come with me and i'll teach you how to enjoy it it's not going to work for everybody gyms aren't boring um 
for me anyway. But it sounds like really we should be looking for experiences, right? Something to right. distract us or right. enjoy while we're doing it. Yeah. So this is not just when we talk about diet and we talk about exercise, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't really just use those two words. This is these words. It's lifestyle. We need to instill a change in lifestyle to people so that it becomes part of their life. If you if you if you like, they're getting the endorphin buzz. They're feeling better, um, and they just feel better. The surprising thing is, um, not many, I have to say, but over the years, I've had patients who are very obese. They're breathless. This, that, and I've gone through. We've checked in. I said, "Look, this is what you've got to do," and and they've come back a year later, and I've said. How are you? He said, I've lost 25 kilograms in weight. I'm exercising every day. And I said, how do you feel? And they said, I feel fantastic, Doc. I'm so grateful. I feel fantastic. I've never felt better. Fine. All good. Job done. And then they rock up four or five years later and they're obese and they're breathless and they come in and I go through my notes and I go, didn't you do all of that last, you know, four or five years ago? And she said, yeah. And I just let it go. So even having had the experience of benefit that that gives them, a lot of people drop out of it. And there lies the problem because it's a chore. If it's a chore, they won't continue to do it. So somehow we have to instill in that that, that, it, that it's fun, it's part of life, which gets back to some degree to Kevin's uh, comment earlier. We then need to make their ordinary day more active, hmm. you know, because it's got to be a bit of both. Yeah. I, I know, you, Chris, you trained in the UK, but also lived many years in, in Spain. Do you see in Europe or other countries, other cultures, do they do this better? Like, no. Are there other groups that we should learn from? No. Uh, um, I mean, the thing, I don't believe so. I mean, the UK is terrible. Um, the, the, the thing about uh, Australia and exercise, and everybody knows around the world knows Australia. It's an outdoor country. Everybody's blonde and fit and surfing and all this sort of stuff. But we're a nation of extremes. We do have... I don't know, 10% of the population that are just exercise addicts. They're out there, they're walking, it's beautiful. But then we have the other extreme where people do nothing. So I don't, I don't, I don't know of any noticeable difference between the UK and here at all. Um, from the point of view, probably worse overseas because it's just not as conducive for six, seven months of the year to go for a walk. And and although I said before that I like more, more um, exercise, in the absence of anything else, you know, it's a linear curve. Um, anything is better than nothing, mm, yeah. anything. And that gets back to how we target these patients where you need to make it realistic. If they, somebody comes in and say, buddy, you got to go to the gym for two hours a day. They're going to walk out and they say, that guy's crazy. So you have to target it to them. If they clearly, you know, I'm not going to do that. So, well, why don't you start with three times a week or something like that and build up to it. But I don't believe the UK is any better. I think this is a, this is Western society. Mm, yeah and, and you know it's um it's a challenge all around and um i quite like some of the interesting ideas that people try though in in the middle east um i think abu Dhabi was giving out gold bars for for yeah. families to lose weight and you know do squats before the end on the train and, yeah. and singapore tried this um they gave tax breaks for people to join the gym so using kind of financial levers and and you know rewards in some ways yeah. but ultimately probably has to come down to intrinsic you know, motivation for it to stick, as you say. It, it has to come down to that, but I do like some of those ideas. In fact, when I was thinking uh, for, for quite a while, in fact, that's why we met Kevin, to setting up my own cardiac gym. Um, we, we are financially driven as human beings, and you can, you can do that sort of thing. I would like to see, um, first and foremost, some incentive to go to the gyms. 
and use them. Of course, not just being a member doesn't count, but there should be some incentive from the government or health funds that you use, you join a gym and you go to the gym and you have to show proof that you've gone. So that incentive. Then you've got things like, um, I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. And there's, it's been in the press lately, actually, bicycle lanes. Let's make it conducive for people to cycle to work. Um, so businesses having showers, changing, making timescales, but it's got to be safe. We've got to have a safe environment. There's no point in trying to cycle down Pacific Highway or Military Road or something like that. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a slowly evolving uh, process. I believe in Holland. Obviously, it's much flatter. And certainly when I was there many years ago, it's just full of bicycle lanes. Everybody cycles there. So it is doable, but it requires a, 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 a major infrastructure. And the problem is, it is just not going to happen because of the way our system works. Admittedly, it's better than the USA, but you know we, we have a government come in here who suddenly turns around and says, right, I'm going to close off one lane of every road. We're going to make a bicycle lane, and every single one of your businesses is going to have a shower. Well, four years' time, they're going to be kicked out of government. So it's just that's that's part of the problem. But, but certainly um, making it conducive to exercise with some financial gain, I mean, Booper MBF, if they had any sense, they'd be saying, right, your premiums, whatever it is, 30 bucks a week less or 100 bucks a week less, but you must go and use the gym. It's funny you should talk about it because I heard something uh, last week about um, from some macroeconomics podcasts that I listened to about central bank digital currencies. And one of the things that they reckon that it's going to happen is they're going to weave in behavioral economics once yeah. central banks roll them out. So what they'll be able to do is start controlling interest rates and personalizing them. So they'll be able to say, well, this demographic gets a, a, a break, gets a, a reduced interest rate on their repayments or an increased interest rate on their savings. And it would all be about yeah. rewarding behavior, which sounds, it sounds a little bit scary and big brotherish, but it also, yeah. it could be, um, gains for society. I think. I think it's look. I think something has to something have to change to to do this. Um, and and we are financially we are financially driven and reward driven. Um, I suppose one one comment to make, uh, despite all our negative or my negativism about uh, lifestyle and exercise and that sort of thing and cardiac disease, um, and there are many reasons for this. But the, the life expectancy is going up. Um, the occurrence of coronary disease and everything is going down so, or getting later on in life. So whilst I'm pessimistic about all these lifestyle measures, we are, we are doing fairly well. Hmm. Um, and in fact, from the cardiac point of view, we've only talked about cardiac disease because I'm a cardiologist, but we can't forget, as I said, the impact on mental health. And from the point of view of exercise and obesity, the impact on knee replacements, on hip replacements, on musculoskeletal problems is probably more of a burden than it is on cardiac disease. Mm. Uh, and and that's, that's just overwhelming the impact that, that weight has on, on musculoskeletal problems. And that, that's as much of an issue as cardiac disease. Absolutely. I mean, it's so, it's so broad, the, the implications. If we get it this right, um, yeah. we could um, reduce... The burden of health, you know, in in many ways for yeah. Australians. But Kevin, in answer, you know, going back to the, it's the it's the kids and the teenagers, and the amount of people. And I often use the the, the comment to patients, you know, they're overweight, and that's the thing. He said, "Oh, yeah, no, not too bad." And I said, "Okay," and obviously it varies. How heavy were you when you were twenty one when you left school? And so, oh, no, I was only 
70 kilograms. I said, well, that is your weight. You know, there's no reason it should change much beyond that, but 90% of patients it do. So there's some, that, that I suppose, are we going to succeed with the 50, 60, 70 year old who's overweight? Probably not. We really probably those teenagers, schools going forward from there. And I think that's where the lifestyle and the businesses and that sort of thing can really, really play a role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we, we're seeing a lot of uh, corporates, uh, organizations mobilized towards uh, better health, especially. Yep. This year. I mean, I can think of uh, Qantas loyalty points for you know um, recording better sleep and yep. uh, data. Um, health insurance they're probably, all, they're probably all recording better sleep at the moment they're not <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um but it still has to be I, I like one of these studies which is around um a few uh, intervention groups that look at yeah. diabetes uh, and weight control um where you pay uh you know people to to lose weight or to manage their sugars better or you yeah. pay uh, clinicians like you know gps yeah. yourself to to manage their diabetes uh, patients better but the group that has the most compelling results compared to control is uh, no financial rewards, which are you know granted important. But mm. just to think about non-financial levers as well um, is the group that has just a buddy, so another person yeah. or patient that's gone through a lifestyle change, as you say, yeah. um, that that this person can connect with, build a relationship with. They might just go have coffee, you know, each week and and yeah. chat. But it's that kind of ongoing support, um, and it might be mental health that actually goes a long way as well. Well, well, this is this is really the concept. And I have to say, I never even heard of it till a couple of years ago when I was trying to think of a strategy to take my um, lifetime ambitions further, uh, is a concept of a life coach and a tailored life coach to that person. Uh, it, and it, it, you know, it's not necessarily a spouse or a friend, but or a personal trainer or someone who goes through. So not just you turn up and do half an hour's exercise with me. We go through this together. I think absolutely um, that's the way to go. And that's that's really when I, why I started to think about saying to patients, so you, you give me a body for six months or a year, but you've got to do what I tell you. And uh, I'm, I'm going to try and tailor that to make it enjoyable. So we'd go from the, the controlled exercise to build it up, to, to go up to Narrabeen Lake and let's go kayaking for a day, to go away for a weekend and just go on walks. So it's a whole lifestyle transition. I couldn't agree more. Um, difficult to set up, but I, I think absolutely. And to some degree, that's where we're going wrong because our lifestyle coach for the 14, 15, 16-year-old should be our parents in our school. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, look, this is um, we should talk more and, and run a pilot. I, I think is, is yep. so that's tremendous. Um, look, we're um, almost out of time. Perhaps the last question might be just looking forward into the future, Chris. Um, you know, what would the experience for someone with heart disease or risks of heart disease look like in, in five or ten years' time? What do you see coming um, with research and, and the direction of cardiology that might change what we what we do? Uh, look, we, we, we obviously have had major advances throughout this from the point of view of technology and devices and new drugs and everything. But I have to say, I'm not uh, aware of anything more on the horizon, uh, which is all the more reason why lifestyle is such an important thing. Um, I really think, you know, we've, we've focused too much on, okay, we can really we can do a primary stent and we can preserve myocardium and we can do a bypass operation. I think we really have to say, look, we're pretty damn good at this and we're pretty damn good at spotting them and getting them early. 
but let's stop it happening in the first place. Um, there are some weight reducing drugs around. There are bariatric surgeries becoming much more acceptable. Um, I would like to think that um, the role forward is non-surgical bariatric therapy, um, which is basically weight loss um, um, uh, approach. And, and the main move in that area is this concept of fasting and, uh, and uh, exercise with that. And, and I'm a strong believer that uh, fasting, a fasting diet, low carbohydrate diet combined with exercise is the way forward. And that's becoming more acceptable, even by um, prominent people in the community. And uh, I, I think that's the way forward. We've got to, we've got to deal with obesity. Yeah, that's tremendous. So um, reinforces the need to get in early and focus. Absolutely. Well, it's it's still doable. I mean, obesity is entirely manageable. It's been failed over the years with, you know, the likes of Jenny Craig and Weight Washers just doesn't work. So now we understand the, the physiology of insulin resistance. Um, weight, weight loss does work if it's done properly. But more important is, or, more, or easier, to stop it happening in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts and um, you've got wonderful ambition that's aligned with what we're trying to do and look forward to working on some pilots together. That's Okay, I look forward to it. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, thanks Jackson. Chris. Take care.